The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, now to Matthew chapter 22. And our lesson today concerns one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith, and the ladies just sang about that a moment ago, and that is the resurrection of the dead, especially, of course, the resurrection of Christ. There are many difficulties in pastoring a church. Uh, There are hard times, and there are certain issues and things that you really don't want to deal with. And for me, one of the most difficult times is when a member of the church dies and I have to preach a funeral. Now, this is not really a word of complaint, but I think you do understand that I don't wake up every day hoping that someone died so I can preach their funeral. Uh, This thought came to me as I was uh, coming to church, uh, I guess a little bit before Christmas, and I had my granddaughter Elisa with me. And Lauren called and said that uh, there had been a serious accident on the the freeway near the Ronard Park exit. And she said, well, you better leave a little bit early because of that accident. And my little granddaughter, Elisa, said, well, I hope that it wasn't somebody who is a member of the church and they died. And, of course, I had the same hope, but maybe for a selfish reason, I don't want to preach a funeral. Now, there's a very important verse that we have in Scripture in the book of Psalms which says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we wonder, why does the Bible say that death is precious? Well, God's not really worried about death because death is the portal by which his children enter into his presence. There is life after death. Or as someone has so aptly said, there is life after life. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about death. One of the most remarkable teachings that we have in Scripture is the resurrection of the physical body. Christ demonstrated that when he was put into the tomb and he was raised, not as a spirit, but he was raised in his body. And the disciples were amazed when they entered into the tomb on the third day, and there they found the grave clothes of Jesus, but there was no body there. That's because Jesus had arisen from the dead. And in that resurrection, we find the greatest hope that a Christian has, that we also know that we are going to be raised from the dead. The power of Christ's resurrection is also the power of our resurrection. And you really do have to understand this, that life after death is something that God has written on the human heart. It doesn't matter where you go or what culture you may study. People have always believed that there is an afterlife. Now, they may not understand it very well, but people do believe that there is life after death. And that is just an inherent knowledge that God has put within the human heart, that this life is not all there is. And this text shows us that there is only one way that we can actually know what that life after death is, and that's by reading the Word of God and understanding what God has to say about it. Now, none of us have ever experienced death before, and so we need God to tell us what it's all about. Now, in this particular text, uh, the resurrection comes into focus as an attempt to discredit the teachings of Jesus. I'd like you to stand with me again as we read God's Word. 
And we're looking at Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 23. Matthew 22, verse number 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, that is, no children, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. Now there they're talking about these brothers married the widow. And in verse 28, Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. We do pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes of understanding to this text and help us to learn what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In this passage, we're in the trilogy, the middle of a trilogy of questions that were asked by Jesus' enemies in an attempt to discredit him. Now, last week, we talked about two groups that came to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they asked Jesus a question, hoping that they might be able to trip him up, they might be able to confuse him. And the question that they asked had to do with Roman taxation. Uh, the question was, should we pay Rome's poll tax or should we not? Now, the Jews, in asking that question, thought that they had caught Jesus in a no-win situation. That it didn't matter how he answered that question, it would be a bad answer. Because on one hand, if he said pay the taxes, he would anger the Herodians or the Roman government. And then on the other hand, if he said don't pay the taxes, or rather if he said don't pay the taxes, he angers the government. If he says pay the taxes, then he angers the people. So they thought that they had him in a question that he couldn't answer. But Jesus diffused that question by saying, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And that was a brilliant answer that he gave. And if you don't understand what that's all about, I'll just ask you to go back and look at last week's, or listen to last week's lesson, and you'll understand why the answer of Jesus to that question was so outstanding. But in this passage, there is a, a second group and there is a second question that has the same motive. How can we trip Jesus up? How can we entangle him in a trap that he cannot answer? And so this question follows immediately upon the first, as there is another group of Jews that came to Jesus on the same day. Now, if you haven't been with us in our study, let me just very briefly tell you that these are the last days of Jesus' life People are trying to get rid of him. The religious groups, all of them, are trying to do something with Jesus. They want to get rid of him as quickly as possible. And, of course, by the end of this week, Jesus will be crucified on the cross. 
Well, this time, there is another group that comes. It's not the Pharisees, it's not the Herodians that we talked about last time. But this is the Sadducees. And this is another of these religious parties in Israel. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background on these people who are called the Sadducees, especially as it relates to the question that they asked Jesus in this text. So we look, first of all, at the sad case of the Sadducees. And it was indeed a very sad case because the very thing that you and I, as the people of God, find our most hope in, the the Sadducees didn't have. We believe and trust God that there will be a resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. I, I can't imagine going through life with all of the hardships that we face. To think that this life is all there is. That there is something better that's coming for us. And I I find it very hard to think about loved ones, people that I care about that have died, and not to know that they are living right now. They've trusted Jesus Christ and they're living right now in the joys of heaven. That's one of the greatest hopes that I have. And I think it is for you too. Uh, Contrary to popular opinion, I am not living my best life now. My best life comes when death, precious death, takes hold of me because I know then I'll awake in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Sadducees had no hope of that because they didn't believe in the resurrection. In Acts 23, verse number 8, the Apostle Paul was defending himself against both Pharisees and Sadducees. And Luke makes an insightful comment about these people. He says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So there you have a difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection. They believed in angels and they believed in spirit beings. But the Sadducees believed none of that. They said there is no resurrection. There is no such thing as angels. There are no spirits. And in fact, the only spirit that they actually did believe in was God. And so when people die, they said there is no more life. You die, that's it. No heaven, no hell, nothing but the grave, and there is no consciousness. Now I can tell you that believing like the Pharisees or Sadducees rather believed is no way to live and it's no way to die. People who believe that there is no afterlife are headed for a very rude awakening because when they pass through death, they will find out that there are spirits. In fact, they will be a spirit at that point and they'll see other spirits, the angels that rebelled against God, the demons are going to be part of their company when they get to hell. And when they wake up in that resurrection, uh, or in, in hell, they're, they're going to find out there will come a resurrection because when, when the end times come, the body will be raised, those dead bodies will be raised in the last day, and the bodies will be rejoined with the Spirit, and then both body and Spirit will enter into a state of intensified suffering where there is eternal bodily torment. Now, anyone like the Sadducees will be beyond sad when they discover that there really is an afterlife. Now, these Sadducees were actually a very small group in Israel. Uh, They were the smallest of all the religious parties. 
And we can understand why. I mean, it's just like today. You, you can't hardly find anybody that doesn't believe in the afterlife. There are some, but there aren't many people who don't believe in it. But this was a small group because they rejected that kind of teaching. But although they were small, they were very vocal and they were very powerful. These are people that were supporters of Rome and that put them at odds with the Pharisees, both on the religious side and also the political side. But they favored Rome and so Rome had put them into power at the temple. Most of the priests in the temple were Sadducees. And in fact, the one who was appointed as the high priest was actually appointed by the Romans. And you know why that, that this is so important and what happened here is so important by, according to the events of the last few days of Jesus' life? Well, just turn back a few pages there to chapter 21 and verse number 12. Chapter 21, verse number 12, where it says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. So it was the Sadducees that were the main ones that were cheating the people. They were making a mockery out of the sacrifices. They were charging exorbitant prices for those sacrifices. They were also in charge of converting the money from Hebrew coinage into, or rather from Roman coinage into Hebrew coinage. And they were making enormous sums of money off of these transactions. So they had amassed tremendous wealth by selling thousands of sacrificial animals. And so when Jesus went into the temple and he drove out those money changers, the ones that were selling the animals, what he actually did was to attack the Sadducees. He attacked their whole power structure. He attacked the wealth that they were making. And that was very important because these were people that lived for the moment. They, they were seeking wealth in this life. That was the most important to, thing to them. And this life is all that they have. They weren't looking for anything better. And so if you wonder how that the Jewish leaders at the time of Passover could be involved in such terrible practices concerning sacrifices and desecrating the sacrifices of God, this is the reason. Because they had no regard for sacrifices at all. There is no afterlife there was nothing to look forward to, and so all they were interested in was making money. Religion was the game in order to make them rich. Now, they weren't very much different at all from the religious charlatans that you find on TV, the fake healers, the Copelands and the Hens and the charismatic crowd and all of that bunch. Religion is a way to prey on the poor. And so they best get all that they can now because they won't have anything later. One day they're going to face God. They'll, they'll face him and, and they'll realize they've done the wrong thing and they'll end up in the torments of the fires of hell. Now folks, this is actually what happens when you don't believe in the afterlife. Wickedness prevails. And that's because there are no restraints. People have no fear of punishment. There are no reprisals. And so nothing is sacred. And that's why the further away that America gets from God, the more immorality there is. It's how people can become desensitized to murder so they can kill innocent little babies. It's how people go after homosexuality and destroy the, the sanctity of the family. It's how that people can live like animals and copulate like beasts with multiple partners. It's the reason 
that you see on the front page of your paper, on the front page of the newspaper, deadheaded dope smokers that have a fair for cannabis. It's the reason why that there is a casino that's built in Roner Park that preys upon the poor. And people applaud that. It's because they have no real fear of God to respect the fact that God has retribution over the evil of this world. They don't actually believe that there's an afterlife or they don't act like they do where they're going to stand before God and answer for their sins. And you know, it's strange that government wants to become our protector and it tells us all the things we can and we cannot do and yet it fosters upon us things that destroy the mind and destroy the the hope that we have, destroy the body with all the wickedness of sin. This is something that you have to watch out for. When government wants to become your benefactor, watch out because your rights are about to be flushed. But this is the way people are. There is no fear of punishment because people do not regard God. Now the Sadducees lived in the moment. And so why wouldn't you do all things necessary to ensure that this life is lived to the fullest? As that old beer commercial used to say, you only go around life, life, around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can get. And you can tell I had trouble with that saying because I'm not really a beer drinker. And then get this about them. They had no messianic hope. I mean, they have no hope of a real Messiah. They're going to die. That's what they thought. And so who needs a Messiah? So we're talking here about totally hopeless people. They lived without hope. Well, the Pharisees, or rather, I keep saying Pharisees, but I mean Sadducees. The Sadducees wanted Jesus stop because they were afraid that his teachings would upset the Romans. And if the Romans were upset with what went on at the temple, if they were unhappy with conditions there, then what they would do is tear it down, and there go the Sadducees. And that is exactly what happened. Just a few years after this, the Romans came, and they did destroy the temple. That was the Sadducees' bread and butter. And so when there was no priesthood and there was no temple, then the Sadducees disappeared. They had no way to hold control over the people. Now, we might ask the question then about them, were they actually believers in God in any respect? Well, we certainly know they weren't atheists. They did believe in God. We would call them liberals. They didn't like the scriptures or the way that the Pharisees interpreted them. They didn't like all the strictures of the Pharisaical religion. And so they they couldn't openly deny Scripture. I mean, we're talking about a religious society here, so they're they're not going to openly deny Scripture. And so they had their own particular interpretations of it. And what they did was they favored the first five books of the Bible. Those are the books that are written by Moses. That's what's called the Pentateuch. So they were supporters of the Pentateuch, and they believed that the rest of the Old Testament was not as authoritative as the Pentateuch. And so the rest of the Old Testament was simply commentary on those first five books that Moses wrote. And so they looked at those five books, and what they couldn't find there was very clear, definitive teachings about the resurrection. And so they just denied it. And they didn't rely on any other passages of the Bible as being authoritative. So they wouldn't look at Daniel chapter 12, verse number 2, and they wouldn't think of Job 19.26, nor of Psalm 73.24, or a host of other scriptures that talk about this life that we have after death. They couldn't find it in the Pentateuch. 
And so they denied that there was a resurrection. So if the Pentateuch doesn't teach it, it's something that they don't believe. Now that leads us then to the next part of this, and that is the mistake that they made about marriage. The mistake that they made about marriage. You see, the Sadducees could not find in the Scriptures, in the Pentateuch, anything about the resurrection. And this was a point that they often used against the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were stumped about it. This argument that the Sadducees used must have been their A number one fallback apology against the doctrine of the resurrection. And what they did was to accentuate the ridiculousness of believing in the resurrection by bringing up an Old Testament law about marriage that was given by Moses. Now let's back up just a moment to consider what the Pharisees taught about the resurrection. The Sadducees heard Jesus preach before. Of course, they heard him preach on many occasions. And he knew, they knew that there was some agreement between him and the Pharisees about the resurrection. Well, Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and so did most of the other people. Now, you remember that when uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that he spoke to Martha, his sister, and he said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said, well, I know that. I know that he's going to rise again. He will rise again at the last day in the resurrection. So that's a common belief. I mean, this is what most of the Jewish people did believe. There is a resurrection. But the Pharisees had a hitch in their understanding about the resurrection. And that hitch undermined their ability to make an argument against the Sadducees. See, they believed that the dead are raised, but the state in which they are raised is the same in which they went into the grave. That the relationships would all be the same, their bodies would be the same, and so they would come out of the grave with the same deformities, it would come out with the same scars, and it really wasn't much of a resurrection for, for people that were poor. It wasn't much of a resurrection for the lame and for the diseased. And they even believed that when a person went into the grave, that the same clothes that he was wearing when they went in, when he went in, is the same clothes he would be wearing when he came out. So all of this accentuated the difficulty of dealing with the Sadducees in an argument about marriage and the resurrection. Now you see what the Sadducees were, they were realist. They were very logical in their thinking. And if the state of a person going into death is the same as coming out of death at the resurrection, then this law that Moses gave becomes a real problem. Now I want you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, and here's where we find the law that they're referring to. This is actually what is called the Leveret Law. Leveret is a word that comes from Latin. It actually means brother-in-law. Now we notice what Moses has to say about marriage and about brothers-in-law. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse number 5. He said, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So here's the deal. If brothers live together, and one of them is married, and he dies without having children, 
And of course, that would mean he dies without having an heir. That the brother, his brother, who, who would be in this case an unmarried person, the brother would marry his widow, and the first child that was born would be an heir to the brother's estate. So the brother-in-law marries her, and so thus you have the law of the brother-in-law, or the leveret law. Now that's a very interesting law, and we see it uh, in action in places like in the book of Ruth. Now that's a fascinating story when you read Ruth, and I wish we had time to go into that, but we don't. But the reason that uh, Boaz married Ruth was because he was following the leveret law. He was a, a kinsman to Ruth's dead father-in-law and also to her dead husband. And so Boaz agreed to marry her in order to reclaim the family's inheritance. And this is actually why that Jesus was born into the family of David. It's because of this leveret law. And that makes it a very important law in Israel. So it's a great story. And if you miss that leveret law, you miss the most important, important uh, part of the book of Ruth. Because the leveret law is the law of the kinsman redeemer. And that's what Jesus Christ is. He is our kinsman redeemer. So that is a very, very important law. But what's it all about? Well, the law was given to protect the Jews and their attachment to their inheritance in the land. Now you go back to the book of Joshua and you find that when Israel went into Canaan, that the land was divided up among the various tribes and certain families received their land. And what they didn't want to do was to have the land pass out from one family from one tribe to another. And so they had this leveret law in order to protect the estate so that an heir would be had and that would keep the land within the family. Now, returning to the point at hand here, what the Sadducees had done, had taken, they had taken this leveret law and they posed a question to Jesus. And by the way, the, at this particular time, the leveret law was probably no longer being observed. And that's because the Romans and others had conquered Israel before and taken away their rights to the land. And so they probably weren't even practicing the leveret law any longer. Uh, so it becomes a, a moot point and it becomes a, a useless question. But the law was on the books, so to speak. And Jesus is one who always upheld the law. And so he has to answer this question in this context, in the way that the Sadducees propose it. So what do they say? Well, they say, suppose that a man is married, and he dies, and he has no children. And so his brother comes, and he marries the widow, but then he dies and has no children. And then there's another brother, and he comes and marries the widow, and he has no children. And there's a fourth brother who comes, and he marries and dies, and they have no children. And that goes all the way up until there are seven brothers who married the same woman, and all of them have no children. Now, I like what one person said about this. He said, if I was that seventh brother, I'd make sure that I was out of town, because that woman is bad luck. But anyway... All, all the brothers are actually have been married to this particular woman. And so the Pharisees ask him, if this is the way things are in the resurrection and everything stays the same, then what are you going to do with the leveret law? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Because all seven brothers had her. This is what they say in verse 28. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Uh, you understand what they could have done. They could have just stopped with two men. 
I mean, this would be a problem with two men, but they add seven into the picture just to heighten the ridiculousness of believing in the resurrection if all things stay the same as they are. So here's the problem with Jesus. For the question, all seven men have her for wife. Now, if Jesus says, well, then she has all seven husbands, then he supports what is called polyandry. You ever heard of that? You know what that is? Now, you understand what polygamy is. That's when a man has more than one wife. Polyandry is when a woman has more than one husband. Now, what you'll find in the Bible, you will find polygamy, but the Bible never condones it, but it's there. But what you will never find is polyandry. And that's because it was so far outside the spectrum and considered to be so immoral, there's no one who would ever support that. And so if Jesus were to say anything about this woman having all seven husbands, then he supports polyandry. And you know something? That stumped the Pharisees. That was a great argument against them. If their understanding of the resurrection is right, then this is a huge problem. And so the Pharisees had no answer for it. But the Pharisees aren't Jesus. The Sadducees fought that Jesus believed the same as the Pharisees. Now, they knew that he did believe in a resurrection, so they assumed that they had Jesus dead to rights on this question. If he says that there is a resurrection and there is no resurrection, then he cannot be God. And therefore, they prove their superiority over him. Now, that leads us then to Christ's answer to this question. Thirdly, is the supremacy of Scripture. Jesus said in verse 29, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now he said, fellows, you have a fundamental misunderstanding, actually two of them in what you think here. You don't know what the scriptures say and you don't know the power of God. Well, how are those two problems true? Jesus said the word of God and the power of God refute your argument. Now as he answers this, he actually reverses those two questions. And first of all, he addresses the power of God. In verse number 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now, here's the issue. In the resurrection of the dead, the material state that we are in and the relationships that we have here on earth do not stay the same. It's not the same when we get to heaven. There's a great change that takes place. Now, though we will have a material body, it won't be exactly like this body. It's not going to have the deformities like the Pharisees thought. It's not going to have all the weaknesses that this body has. It's not going to have the same mental capacities. The body and the resurrection is going to be different. The Apostle Paul addressed that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You remember how he made the argument or made the statement? He said that when you plant a seed in the ground, that when the plant comes out of the ground, that it doesn't look like the seed. It's different from the seed. So there's a great transformation that takes place. Now, the same God that made man in the first place has the power to change us in the resurrected life. So why would you ever doubt the power of God to do that if you believe that God is able to create all things, which he did? He created the world out of nothing. So why do you doubt the power of God to change the body when it's raised? 
Now what happens when you go into the grave is that your body goes there and it begins to decompose and the molecules of your body and the substance of your body gets, 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 gets sent out into the cosmos again and what God does at the resurrection is he gathers all of that back up together and he makes a new body out of that, a glorified body and he gives us all these different characteristics. So we don't doubt that as Christians because we believe in the power of God. And so this is why we never worry about death. Death has no sting for us. Death to the saints is precious in the eyes of God. And that's because we know that God makes us something new. We'll become something different. So we don't worry about death at all. The Apostle John addressed this in the book of Revelation. He said, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Listen, for the former things are passed away. It's different. So that's what it's going to be like in the resurrection. Our new glorified bodies will be rejoined with our spirits in heaven. But notice that Jesus goes on and he talks about relationships in heaven. They're not the same. There is no marriage in heaven. And why is there no marriage? Because there's no need of procreation. There's no need for that. Now the Sadducees' questions actually has to do with conjugal relations. Whose wife shall she be in the resurrection? Because all of the brothers had her. But there's no need to worry about that because the relationships are gone. We don't marry because we have no need to procreate to preserve the race. The heavenly race never dies. And then you notice how that Jesus brings the angels into it. The Sadducees don't believe in the angels. Angels don't procreate because they're a fixed number. All of them are a special creation of God. Angels don't die. And so there's no need for little angels, new angels to come along. Because angels don't die. So Jesus said that we are going to be like the angels. Now pay attention to me here. He does not say that we become angels. We do not become angels when we die. And that's a common thing that people think. I mean, it's a a terrible mistake. You'll hear people say this. Oh man, mom died. And, and, and heaven has a new angel. Heaven does not have a new angel. We don't become angels when we die. Jesus says we become like the angels in this respect that we'll live forever and we never need to procreate. And so when you get to heaven, you won't have a wife or a husband. And because of that, there are many Christians who say, I sure be glad when I get to heaven. But then there are others who say, heaven's not going to be so good. I love my wife and I love my husband so much I can't bear not to have that same relationship with them. But there's another thing that you don't need to worry about. Because your love for your husband or your wife will never be diminished. Instead, it will be increased beyond your capacity to even understand because when you get to heaven, you'll have the same love as Jesus Christ. 
You'll love your mate even more than you ever could imagine. And you're not thinking on these base, sensual things about the conjugal relations like the Sadducees and the Pharisees were thinking about. That's not an issue. We don't worry about those things. Now, you know, this, this is a really a sad thing about the doctrines of Mormons and the doctrine of, of uh, Muslims. I mean, for them, heaven is endless sexual encounters. That's what they're looking for. I mean, they're still down here on the base and the sensual, and God is up here on a completely different plane. We have a different kind of love, different kind of thoughts, and we love people like no one could ever have an understanding now. We'll have the perfect love of Jesus Christ. So first of all, they don't know anything about the power of God. Then Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures. In verse number 31, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, if you have a pencil, you need to underline this phrase in verse number 31. Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Now, do you know what Jesus declares there? He absolutely affirmed that the scriptures are God's word. Your Bible was spoken by God. This is God's inspired word. Now, he inspired men to write it, and Jesus very clearly tells us here, have you not read what was spoken by God? You can have every confidence in the world that your Bible is the word of God. Men didn't write this. God used them, but these are God's words. And did you know there was a time when almost everybody believed that the Bible was the word of God? I mean, there, there really wasn't any argument over that. I mean, people may not have understood it very well and things that they, that they read in the Bible, but the basis for any theological argument that people would have is that the Bible is the word of God. And we believe, believe it because it is the word of God. But people don't so much believe that any longer. And so you'll go to churches where they do what I mentioned a moment ago. They just put up the Word of God. They put it on a shelf. They don't read from it. Or if they do read from it, the pastor takes a scripture and he reads it and never touches it again. Never says anything about that. And then he begins to preach a message that includes all of his own thoughts, his own words, some little social thing that he wants to give you, some little, some little uh, sermonette about being, being good or, or loving your neighbor, which is a good thing to do, of course, but all these things that have nothing to do with the, with the scripture that is at hand. That's not how you handle the word of God. You take the word of God, a preacher is supposed to take it and give the sense of the reading of the text and what that means, what God would have for you to know. So if you go to a church, you visit a church where they put up the word of God and lay it aside, get out of that place. Get out as quickly as you can because you don't want to become a Sadducee. Now Jesus affirmed in the veracity of scripture, he said, these are God's words. Now notice how he masterfully uses God's words. The Sadducees liked the Pentateuch. They liked the words of Moses. And so what did Jesus do? He went straight to the words of Moses. He went to the Pentateuch to prove that there is life after death. And the place that he went was Exodus 3, verse number 6. That's in the Pentateuch. 
So that's God speaking to Moses. And according to them, you can't get any more authoritative than a conversation that takes place between God and Moses. So that's where Jesus went. Exodus 3, 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, if you've been in church very long, especially here at Berean, you know what this is. God said, I am. That is the present tense of the eternally existent God. The Bible never says, or God never says, I was. He always says, I am. Now, Jesus quotes that. And what God did not say, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am. And he mentions all three of those because of his personal relationship that he had with them. I am their God. Now, when God spoke those words to Moses, all, all three of those patriarchs were dead, ranging from 200 to 400 years dead, and yet God speaks of them as living. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living, and God is forever the God of the living. Now, think back. Do you remember that God made a covenant with Abraham? That he told Abraham that he would inherit the land and that he would be the father of many nations. And actually, Abraham died without realizing that promise, didn't he? But what Jesus is telling us here is that at this time that he spoke those words to Moses, that Abraham was living in heaven and he would see the fulfillment of the promise that God made because he was alive when the children of Israel went into the promised land. And so what Jesus makes an argument here, or the basis of it, is the reliability of God. That God is always faithful to his promises. So God would not say, I am the God of Abraham who no longer exists. And I am the God of Isaac who no longer exists. I am the God of Jacob who no longer exists. And guess what? I am your God until you no longer exist. Who wants a God like that? He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Now, here's the thing. The Pharisees never knew that there was an argument like that in Scripture. They'd read the Scriptures far more than any of us ever do. They studied the Scriptures, but they had never understood this argument about God being the God of the living and what he said to Abraham or said to Moses. Now, what Jesus did, in about five seconds, he came up with this particular Scripture, and there are many more that are like it, in about five seconds, he discovers the answer, or gives them the answer to their question. And I'll tell you this, I don't think the Sadducees ever used this argument again against the Pharisees. Jesus just totally diffused it. So what happened? Well, everybody heard it and they were astonished. Nobody is able to explain Scripture like Jesus. So what did they do? Well, the Pharisees thought, well, those ignorant Sadducees, those ignorant fools. Look how Jesus just put them down. And then what do they do? Let's go figure out another question to try to stump him. And that's exactly what they did. And we'll come to that one next week. So they don't change anything. And you know something? The Sadducees are like so many people when it comes to Scripture. That, that they try to pull out some obscure law. Here, here they pull out something they're no longer practicing. And they try to stump him. And you notice that that's how people do when they want to argue the Bible? I mean, you can give them very clear scripture about what they must do to be saved. 
I mean, I can pick up the Bible. I can tell you what Jesus tells you that you must do, that you must repent of your sins, and you must put your faith in him, and he will save you from your sins, and he'll save you eternally. So what you must do is trust him, give him your heart, love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, as we'll see next week. Love him like that. Give him everything. But when you tell people the very clear things in Scripture that they must do, do you know what they ask? Where did Cain get his wife? So they pull up something very obscure, a question that really has no bearing on anything that we really need to know, do we? I mean, of course, that's impo- maybe that's important to know in some ways. But they deny the very clear teachings of Scripture. They bring up obscure questions in order to dodge the obvious commands of what God requires them to do. Now, what I hope about you is that you're not that kind of person. I hope that you don't have the tendencies of the Pharisees. Now, the question is not, is there a resurrection? Because we're all going to be raised from the dead. Listen to what Daniel 12 verse 2 says. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it's not a question of whether there will be a resurrection, but the question is, in which resurrection will you be? Because there's going to be two of them. Some will be raised to everlasting life, and some will be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. Contempt. Now, if you're not satisfied with what the Old Testament has to say, what Daniel said, then what about the words of Jesus himself? In John chapter 5, he says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Now, I don't know about this. There, there, There may be a time, there may be a day that will come when one of your relatives will call me and they will say, will you come and preach the funeral of my mom? Will you come and preach the funeral of my dad or come and preach the funeral of my brother or my sister? And that person that died will be you. And I know that you're going somewhere. I know that your spirit's going to leave the body and I know it's going to go to one of two places, either to heaven or to hell. It's going somewhere, either those two places. And what I want to know is, I, can I confidently say that I know that you are in heaven because of your personal faith in Jesus Christ? Will I be able to say to your loved ones, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints? And I surely do hope when that time comes that I can comfort your children with those words. There is a resurrection of the dead. You need to be sure which resurrection you're in. And I promise you this, that if you will repent of your sins and you will trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, relying completely upon him to take you to heaven, I have the utmost confidence that you will be in the resurrection of life. Everlasting life. But I also know that this is true based upon this infallible word of God that he's given us, that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your body will most certainly be raised, but it will be raised to join your spirit in the everlasting torments of hell. Folks, that's Bible. That's the inspired Word of God. And though people may not like to talk about hell or preach about hell, these pages contain it. 
And Jesus said it. And you must believe in him to escape the awful torments of hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your presence thanking you for your word, thanking you for what's declared here that Jesus shows us that there is a way to everlasting life. You are the God of the living. There's a life that comes after death. And by putting our faith and trust in you and all of our confidence in you, you promise that you will give us this everlasting life. But then again, we also know, as we've just said, that without faith in Jesus Christ, there is an awful, an awful place that awaits, a place where there is no escape. That's the eternal torments of hell. But the truth of your word shows us that there's no reason for anyone to go to hell. You are faithful to your promise that you will save them from their sins and take them to heaven when they die. Lord, I do pray that I will be able someday, if I'm called upon, to comfort family members and loved ones with the words, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Bless someone today, Lord, open up their hearts to the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.